Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Dalbo Rohaj and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by my friends. Giselle Donnelly, also at the American Enterprise Institute and... Julia Zoza with the Middle East Institute and Georgetown University. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace and security that have emerged along the line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. Our special guest today is Katarina Buchatsky, the founder of the Shadows Project and an intern at the American Enterprise Institute. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Kath, uh, you are interning at AEI. You are an IR student at Stanford. And last year, you started an organization called the Shadows Project that seeks to preserve uh, Ukrainian cultural identity and, and, and national identity more broadly in the face of Russian attempts at uh, rewriting history and and, 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 and and just denying denying Ukrainians their full nationhood, if you if you will. Maybe before we get into the weeds and before we talk about the history of that, uh, might be useful for us to learn more about the thought process on your end and among your friends that went into the founding of the organization about what the organization does in, in as, 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 as a matter of just practical efforts and day-to-day work. And then we can sort of look at, at the sort of you know, substantive and, and, and historical ramifications of, 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 of the themes you're trying to tackle. Yeah, absolutely. So I started Shadows Project actually two years ago now. Time is flying. But I started Shadows Project after a trip to Kiev in September of 2019. I had been living in the U.S. for a few years already, but I grew up in Kiev. And I came back in September to visit my home country again after spending some time in the U.S. And being back in Kiev for the first time in a while was a very formative experience because I think coming back to Kiev as a young adult after leaving it in my early teens, I left Kiev when I was 13, and coming back as a young adult and seeing how much the city had to offer that I felt as though I never saw when I was living there. I started really reflecting as to why that was and why my time spent living in Kiev, I felt as though I didn't really get the full breadth of the Kiev, the Ukrainian experience. And I started to talk to some of my other friends, also from Ukraine, also from Kiev, and they shared with me that similar sentiment. They said they never really understood their Ukrainian identity. They were trying to work through it. And Ukraine was developing its own identity alongside ours in a way, because Ukraine is a very young country. It's 30 years old. We're in our 20s. We kind of grew up alongside the country. And for a lot of us, we tie our own personal identities to the development of our Ukrainian ones as well. We are just trying to learn who we are while our country's doing the same thing. And so I remember having these conversations with my friends and we were talking about what the future of Ukraine will look like. And this was 2019. There was a lot of optimism at the time. And we were really excited about what was going to happen to Ukraine and how it was going to develop. And we all unanimously had this feeling that one of the biggest challenges Ukraine was going to face was the development of its national identity. We all understood that having 
a strong sense of ourselves and having a strong identity was the foundation for a successful state. Because for all of us, having been 13-year-olds at the time of the Crimean annexation, we understood that the reason that the Crimean annexation you know, was able to go down the way it went down was because there wasn't this overwhelming sense of certainty of what Ukraine means, who Ukrainians are, what the language we speak is, what our values are, who our heroes are. And we have, we're still struggling to overcome a lot of the internal divides and the internal messages of what our identity means. And we understood that that was something that Russia took advantage of in 2014 when they came into Eastern Ukraine and they came into Crimea and said, this is who you are. And when we don't have our own strong narrative to say, that's not who we are, this is who we are, you know, we fell, we fell victim to Russia's narrative and we paid a price for it. And we understood that two years before this war started, that we needed to put together the Ukrainian nation and really internalize it um, for ourselves as well. And that's how the Shadows Project came to be. The name Shadows is a reference to this really famous piece of Ukrainian literature called Shadows of Our Forgotten Ancestors. And we make a reference to that because we thought that name, Shadows of Our Forgotten Ancestors, was really powerful in the way of um, explaining what we're trying to do. Like all of these Ukrainian ancestors that came before us, a lot of which have been forgotten, purposefully erased, purposefully rewritten, they all have carried a certain type of Ukrainian identity and story with them. And we're trying to figure out what that is, what that means to us, unravel it and internalize it. And I think that we had a weird foresight about how the developments were going to go, because as we know, when Putin, right before he declared the beginning of his special military operation, quote unquote, he had his speech on February 21st. That was the famous historical speech where he said Ukraine has never existed. It was created in 1917 by the Bolsheviks, et cetera. That distortion of history, that is a product of, you know, centuries of Russia trying to erase it and erase our ancestors and erase our experiences. And so the name Shadows means a lot to us and the project as as a thought experiment, as a social experiment, as a community building organization. It, um, that's how it came to be. Kat, I'm, I'm struck in very many ways by, by what you say. Um, I think it maybe later in our discussion, we should talk about the contrast between your experience at Stanford and in California and of America, man. Yeah. I almost can't imagine other people, Americans of your age, even thinking about, they talk so much about identity, but in a, with a different frame of reference. But I wish you would sort of spin out your idea, because it does seem like the quest for identity is both a recovery of a past one, but equally, and maybe even more powerfully, the creation of a new one. So I'd be interested in your how you balance those two um, threads. Absolutely. And that is our biggest challenge at Shadows, because realistically, when was a time in Ukrainian history where we could openly express our Ukrainian nationhood and our Ukrainian identity? Almost never. It's always been repressed. It's always been in the shadows, um, forgive my pun. And it's always been something that we have had to hide and work around and find find ways to practice our culture, our identity, and find ways to preserve our history that aren't in the open. And so 
when you think about the opportunity that we're faced with now after gaining our independence in 91 and having the world essentially at our fingertips where you can finally say, we are Ukrainian, this is what it means. It's hard to find that balance because a lot of the aspects of our identity and culture that existed hundreds of years ago are not necessarily relevant to the Ukraine we're living in now, nor relevant to the way that we can practice our Ukrainian identity today. A lot of our rituals and our traditions, for example, were purposefully designed to be practiced in secret. And we don't need to do that anymore. And so that is one of the things that we consider at Shadows when we're shaping a modern Ukrainian nation and a modern Ukrainian identity. How can we keep up this historical continuity while also making sure that we are modernizing and reflecting our day-to-day experiences in Ukraine today. And so the way that we do this at Shadows, to bring it from the abstract to very specific, we have a youth-focused project. I mean, we're all young 20-year-olds running the project, and we target towards people our age because we are the next rising generation of Ukrainians that are going to have a say in what that means. And so it's very youth driven. And what we do essentially is we do a lot of research and we take a look at the history, historical traditions, culture, stories, archives, literature, all of these things from the centuries of Ukrainian existence. And we say, what does this mean to us today? And how can I, as a 21 year old living in a completely different Ukraine, how can this still be something that I can connect to my ancestors with and how can I make it relevant? So some of the things we do are contemporary takes on old Ukrainian songs, for example, so that young Ukrainians can be learning these traditional Ukrainian songs, but in a way that's relevant to their lives. We've also done contemporary twists on Ukrainian foods through cocktail menus for our 21-year-olds that have little histories alongside them so you can actually internalize your culture in that way, quite literally, you know, you're having these cocktails and it's something that's relevant to you, but you're also learning and you're also kind of tasting in a way, maybe what your ancestors would have tasted a few hundred years ago. And that bonds you in a very unique way. And so we have a very different approach, I think, to nation building, which is what makes it fun and what makes it cool. And it's, you know, we do things from nation building through cocktail menus to um, interesting posts and stories to music to interactive experiences events we really try our philosophy is the only way for our culture to be carried along with us is for us to actually be able to internalize it and it's not just about reading and memorizing it's be able to live it as well and so that's kind of what we do, if that makes sense. We try and bridge the old and the new and shape a new Ukrainian identity through that. It sounds like a lot of fun. It sounds like I want to be Ukrainian too. <laughs> I, I love working on it. Um, I want to ask you the about the elephant in the room and the topic that everybody has been obsessing over, particularly now in 2022. And that's how Ukrainian identity, in your view, gets defined as excluding of discriminating of or inclusive of Russian language. Um, When Dalibor and I were in Kyiv a month ago or a few weeks ago, the government had just uh, made um, Russian music in public places illegal. And we didn't know how to think about it. And there's this 
one story that I heard this week that I think is highly relevant. Um, one of my former students from Georgetown now has um, uh, a grant, is a fellow of mine, um, funded by the State Department, and she's in Poland talking to Ukrainians your age um, in college about um, how they feel about Russia and the United States, about national identity in terms of defining it in relation to others. And she told me, apart from the fact that she's shocked at how articulate and cohesive they are in how they think about these things um, in comparison to others her age um, that she's met, um, she told me this fascinating story about um, one of the young women she was interviewing who, again, your age, 22, 23, when she was about four years old, so this was pre-Crimea, pre-2014, um, she uh, was uh, with her grandma overnight. Uh, her parents were on a work trip and her grandma sang this lullaby for her to fall asleep. She could barely speak, right? Three, four, four years old. And the grandma um, sang it in Russian. And the little girl said, I will not fall asleep until you sing that lullaby in Ukrainian. Um, and I think that's, that's, you know, striking. So I'm wondering how you and... Um, and your initiative, how you guys are thinking about these things. How do you, I know it's something that you're struggling with. How do you define Russian culture and Russian language in terms of, does it have a place in, in Ukrainian nationhood anymore? Russian culture and Russian language, two different things. Russian culture most certainly doesn't have, nor has ever had, a proper place in the Ukrainian nation. I think the very basis of Russian culture, a lot of these Russian greats that unfortunately we have monuments to, for example, Pushkin, a lot of them that are being taken down. Pushkin has a history of advocating for Russian imperialism in Ukraine. So that I think has never had a proper place. The Russian language, it is a complicated issue and it has a lot of nuances. I'll tackle this from two approaches. On the front of the organization, we only post content in Ukrainian and English. So that is our organization policy. We will never post anything in Russian, and we haven't um, since we started two years ago. And the reason we did this is because we want to have, we do want our content to be accessible to a wide range of people, because in a way, this project is about countering information operations. We're putting forward our own narratives. And so having it be available in English is important for the international community to read. Now, we're having it only available in Ukrainian for Ukrainian speakers, because I think to us, the Russian language is something that we have had to have present in our country because it was imposed on us but we do not have to continue it in a way. It's something that we have to overcome. It exists in our country and it would be silly to ignore that. I myself, full disclosure, grew up a Russian speaking Ukrainian. My family's from Odessa, we're from Southern Ukraine. I didn't learn Ukrainian until actually I started learning it um, after the annexation of Crimea. And so for me, I, I, can't, I can't possibly say that Russian speakers don't have a place in the country because that includes myself, that includes a lot of my family, that includes 50% of Ukraine, and that I think is silly. But I think that the way we should approach it is an, through an understanding of, yes, Russian speakers exist, they're a part of our country, and of course they've helped shape our country in their own ways. And it's not necessarily 
their fault that they're Russian speakers. Like it is kind of, I think the internal discourse in Ukraine, there's a lot of conflict between this because a lot of the people that are pure Ukrainian speakers that have always spoken Ukrainian, that is a privilege. Most of Ukraine didn't have the same privilege to go to Ukrainian school and to have the language taught freely because of Soviet imperialism. And so, you know, it has to be kind of, Ukrainians have to approach this with an understanding that not everyone had the same opportunity. But at the same time, I do think that the Russian speakers that exist in our country do have a certain civic responsibility to take it upon themselves to make the transition, as I did a few years ago. It is not my fault that I grew up a Russian speaker. I don't think that me growing up a Russian speaker, I did active harm to the country, but I myself have kind of a self-awareness enough to understand that I should make sure that I can do everything in my power, that in the future, when I do have a choice, when I'm old enough to make that decision, I choose Ukrainian. Russian was given to me as a child, but now that I have a choice, I'm choosing Ukrainian. And I think that's the way it's going to move forward. And I think that it's with the understanding that as long as you are making a conscious choice to stand, as long as you're making a conscious choice in a way to change that, it's one thing. But I do think that the Russian language doesn't have a place in the future. And I do think it's something that we should be phasing out because not because of Russian speakers themselves, because the Russian language inherently is a tool of the Russian state. When you're speaking the Russian language, you're consuming information in Russian. And what does that mean? It means you're likely consuming information that is either written by Russians, so Russian literature, you're consuming Russian music produced in Russia, you can consume Russian news, and all of these things, they're all tools of propaganda, whether we're super aware of it or not. And so I think that making sure that you are consuming Ukrainian content in its purest form in a way without any influence from any of the Russian creators, I think is going to be important for the future of our country. If I may, I have two reactions to what has been said in one question. Um, one reaction is uh, goes back to to what Giselle alluded to in terms of the sort of you know similarities and differences between your effort and the ongoing debates about identity in America. Uh, and it's, it strikes me that it's not simply that that the American debate over identity. Um, seems to be geared towards ever greater fragmentation and you know narcissism of small differences if you will and and, and just revisiting of past injustices whereas your effort seems to be geared towards building a sort of shared you know civic culture and sense of togetherness but, but also that by by necessity uh, your project is is very much a forward looking one and and that's what makes it exciting and and, and I just don't see the same sense of excitement among you know the proponents of the 1619 project let's say and and the sort of efforts to like unearth uh you know everything that's that's wrong with america without simultaneously offering positive agenda so that that was just sort of you know an observation that you can you can take at its face value or 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 or, 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 or dismiss i i know you have a second question but i wanted to add a, a and third one that <laughs> when you answer dalibor's question I'd very much be interested in whether you can draw a contrast between what you found uh, in your Ukrainian identity, if I could just use that shorthand term, and you know, to to leave Stanford, which is sort of you know, if there is a place of privilege in American society, 
you know, that that's one of them. I was very struck by that and reading your story. So, uh, Dalibor, please continue. So, okay, so my, my, my two, two, two remaining uh, reactions. So, so, so one thing that I found interesting about sort of you talking about um, your relationship to, to, to Russian language is, is something that comes up very often in these sort of debates about minority language rights across Europe. And, and I think there's this sort of framing which is being applied blindly to yeah. Ukraine as if Russian speakers in Ukraine were in the same kind of situation as Hungarian speakers in Romania or, you know, like a number of ethnic groups that like because of the way borders were drawn in 1920 or whenever they just ended up on the wrong side of the border and 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 they are these sort of hapless minorities in 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 states governed by by others and i think it's worth stressing and and, and feel free to you know contradict me or, or 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 sort of you know agree with me that that that's not generally speaking not the case of russian speakers in ukraine that that, that this is not a sort of distinct ethnic group that drew mistake or 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 or, or whatever happening of of, of 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 history ended up in 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 ukraine but it's really the fact that for 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 decades if not centuries russian was being imposed on on yeah. the ukrainian population and uh and, and relatedly my finally my question is uh, whether you could sort of walk us through some of these most egregious examples of sort of Russian efforts at erasure of Ukrainian identity, whether in, you know, culture, popular culture, uh, the way history uh, had long been thought before yeah. before before Ukraine's independence. Uh, if 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 there are sort of like yeah. sort of particularly arresting anecdotes, thing that Western audiences are not Absolutely. fully aware well, of. I think it's really helpful. On first to address the issue of the framing of minority languages in Ukraine, I think you're you're right that when Western audiences don't necessarily have an understanding of what actually happens in Ukraine and the way we actually use our languages, it can be easy to say Russian is a minority language and needs to have these certain protections. I I think that there's a fundamental misunderstanding because when 50% of Ukrainians speak Russian to some capacity, that's not a minority language. That is, you know, a lot, a lot of the population using this language. And I say this so that people understand that this is not a fringe group of these Russian speakers in Ukraine. This is me. This is my friends. This is people I know. This is a lot of the country that is able to speak bilingually because it was imposed on us and we were raised with the Russification of Ukraine um, throughout the Soviet Union. And so now we're coming to a point where we have this issue we have to deal with where this isn't our country's language. And I think that in any other place, it's perfectly normal to say, we have our own language, it's Ukrainian, this is going to be the main language of the state. And yet for some reason, because of Russian efforts to distort the Ukrainian intentions, this has become a huge issue and blown up about Russian language discrimination. But I think that any other country can understand that they have a language and they need to make the language of their country, the primary language of instruction. It's, it's you know, a reasonable thing to ask. And so just to clarify. Maybe we should. <laughs> yeah. um, and so the second question, you know, to explain exactly how we got to a point where 50% of Ukrainians speak Russian, this is something that's been happening since essentially the start of the Russian empire ever since the, the first, the very first time on record that the Ukrainian language was discriminated against in the Russian Empire was by the Valuev Circular. 
And the value of circular was put into place, I want to say the 18th century or 17th century. And it was put into place by the Russian Empire. And it essentially said, Ukrainian as a language is not a distinct language. It's a dialect. So we're not going to allow you to teach it. We're not going to allow you to use it. And we're going to ban the existence of the Ukrainian language. And that was kind of the first domino in the Russian Empire slash Soviet Union slash Russian Federation's efforts to wipe out a unique Ukrainian identity, because what they did after the value of circular, when they established Ukrainian is not a separate language, which, by the way, I would challenge any Russian to try and speak and understand Ukrainian, any Russian who believes it's not a separate language, because I promise you, it's very difficult um, as someone who had to learn Ukrainian as a Russian speaker. And so they essentially, with that being put into place, started burning Ukrainian books that were all written in Ukrainian, um, prohibited from teaching Ukrainian in schools and started cracking down on any expression of this identity. And it kind of escalated to a place where by the late 1800s, you weren't really allowed to wear Ukrainian clothing. You weren't allowed to express any kind of Ukrainian culture in any way. Um, in fact, it's it's interesting because in the late 1800s, one of the ways Ukrainians found their way around this ban, like I said, you know, most of our expression of culture has been really creative and really underground. So one of the ways Ukrainians found a way to express their culture, despite all the really heavy bans in the Russian Empire, was through theater. Because when you're putting on a play, it's not real life it's theater, it's, you know, creative. And so in the late 1800s, the Ukrainian national movement was actually essentially driven by the theater. And so we had a Ukrainian theater troupe that would put on plays about Ukrainian life. And it eventually got banned and they banned the theater in Ukraine because the Russians started noticing that Ukrainians would go to the theater and in the theater, they would speak Ukrainian amongst themselves as part of an act. And they would, you know, wear their Ukrainian clothing as part of their costumes. And the Russians started to realize that we were onto something and eventually banned Ukrainian theater. So that, you know, a few examples of the ways that they've been banning those expressions. And then I think, it all came to a boil in the 1900s during the Soviet Union, where you can see the most extreme examples of the repression of Ukrainian identity. I think one of the harshest examples in Ukrainian history is in Kharkiv in eastern Ukraine, when they had this intelligentsia community in Kharkiv um, at the time in the 1920s, when the when there was a lot of writers and poets and uh, people writing literature in Eastern Ukraine. And essentially, there was this house called the Slova House, where a bunch of Ukrainian writers lived together, and they were producing content. And eventually, the KGB came to their house and said, you can't be, you know, a part of the Ukrainian intelligentsia, you can't be producing this kind of content. And they killed everyone in the house, over 40 people were killed. And this saga and this story in Ukrainian history is called the executed renaissance because what was happening in the 1920s was that there was a flourishing, there was a renaissance and a reawakening of Ukrainian identity after the formation of the Ukrainian SSR and after fighting our war for independence. And this renaissance that was blooming, the KGB saw that and the KGB was on that and hence the name the executed renaissance when they killed everyone living in that building essentially. And so, and this continues from 
the 1930s when the Holodomor was a genocide against the Ukrainian peasants because the Ukrainian peasants were um, harboring Ukrainian culture. And then you have six years descendants that also all got wiped out. And so Ukrainian history is a continuous cycle of us trying to understand and formulate our identity, it getting squashed and then it building back up until it gets squashed again, which is why for me in particular, this war I mean, it's devastating and tragic in so many more ways than one, but I think something that always hits close to home when I'm thinking about the current war is I really, really thought, me and my friends, we we really, really thought that this was going to be our chance and that we would have the Renaissance and we would build the Ukraine that our forgotten ancestors were never able to build. And it's so infuriating that, of course, just as we're getting into the swing of things and it's it's flourishing and where Ukraine is being Ukraine and we're able to understand what that means that we see a war that is not only a territorial war but actually another war on our very culture and our very existence and it's so frustrating for so many reasons that we thought that we would be able to be the generation that overcame that and we still might but we'll see. I think you already did in a way, and and I wanna I wanna run this by you. I'll, I'll I hope I'll make sense. To me, um, also in the literature, when we talk about national identity, we tend to divide them based on a European model into the ethnic identity that us in Central and Eastern Europe have been very keen on with everything that means folklore and traditions, and then the political or civic identity that um, is more predominant here in the United States. And I'm wondering how you think about these things with your experience here at Stanford and, and now in, in Washington about Ukrainian identity already being being kind of solidified by this war and Though there's so much work to do to push um, Russian imperialism away, the the fact that the silver lining to me from, from this conflict is that for me and for the region, and I'm hoping for Western Europe too, there's no doubt that Ukrainian identity now is at, at its peak in terms of um, political identity. And I'll give you this other example um, from Odessa as well. A friend of mine has been volunteering at the Bucharest Central Station for refugees coming in as a translator. And uh, he met this woman from Odessa who said, um, I'm not Ukrainian. I'm a Russian. I speak Russian older generation. My mom was such and such in the old Soviet Odessa. But I don't want to be part of the Russian Federation because what that would mean is to go to prison for a like on Facebook. And that to me is Ukrainian identity, whether she realizes it or not, because it is now linked to directly and inadvertent and, and without any way of Russia to interfere in that it is linked to liberal democracy. And what I've seen when, when I was in Kiev recently was exactly that, that everybody was thinking critically and independently. Everybody had their own opinion about the war. They weren't reproducing someone's, e even if it's the Kiev government's um, ideas about it, but, um, but everybody had their own contribution. And like someone was saying, now Ukraine is a huge um, revolution of dignity, right, caused by Russia. So does that, how do you think about these things, political or civic versus ethnic identity when it comes to Ukraine? 
I think that you're right in that way. It is one big revolution of dignity in the spark that it's ignited for us to rediscover. And I completely agree that there is a silver lining and it would be it wouldn't be doing it justice to say that we aren't getting our chance to develop our identity because I think you're right. This is an unprecedented level of unity for Ukraine, of understanding of what we are, of who we are, and most importantly, an unprecedented level of awareness, as you said, from the world that Ukraine is its own independent country and not even, even in 2014, that awareness wasn't there. Even in 2014, there was a lot of, yeah, it's independent, but I guess the Crimea was, but you know, that there was still a gray area there. So I think the silver lining is people know what Ukraine is, where Ukraine is, and what it's not. And we know that as well. And that is something that really, I think, can only be done with a war when it can really only be done this level of consolidation, and especially internationally as well can only be done when you have a direct threat, so that you can define yourselves in, you know, relation to the other. And I think that that is something the war has given us. What I think I fear is The reason that I say that I'm still really afraid about what this means for the development of our culture um, is because Russia is still attacking our culture, even if they don't have control over our territory. Every day, museums are being bombed, uh, are being attacked. And most importantly, a lot of the uh, artifacts and historical documents and cultural artifacts from eastern and occupied parts of Ukraine are being stolen by Russia, which isn't being covered as much in the Western media. But there's a lot of stories coming out, especially from Mariupol, that thousands and thousands of artifacts were evacuated from the museums and stolen and taken back to Russia. That is my fear. I understand Ukrainians have an understanding of who they are, but do they have kind of the tangible ways to interact with that? Like, do we have our artifacts? Do we have our art? Will our history live on with us beyond just in our memory and in our minds? Like, we, we need those physical things. That's the way that we've carried it forward in all of these centuries, through hidden messages in our embroidered bishabankas, through our art, through the things that we pass down with us. And even in an unprecedented time of unity and of understanding of who we are, these physical representations of our culture are being taken away from us. And I fear what happens when we come back to Eastern Ukraine and all of that is gone. How will we know what our history was? We haven't had, we've only been independent for 30 years. We haven't even gotten through the tip of the iceberg of what our historical archives have. Is any of that going to be left for us to discover? Those stories from centuries and centuries of Ukrainians that were stored in archives in Kharkiv, in Mariupol, in Kherson, like all of these histories, who knows what Russia's doing with them and if they'll still be there when we get back. And unfortunately, you know, as optimistic as I am for our future, that's chunks and chunks of our past that's lost. And that's not something that we can really do anything about, which is why I say it's so frustrating for me that just when we had the chance to kind of bring that to light, it's still being taken away from us. Karen, it seems like you also have an important struggle um, here in the West yeah. to make a claim for a unique Ukrainian identity. The, the sort of Russian propaganda uh, that you cited earlier aligns very, unfortunately, yeah. um, with what 
many so-called uh, worldly Westerners, uh, whether it's in Western Europe or the United States, uh, believe about the um, sublimation or non-existence or secondary, second-class status, so to speak, of Ukrainian life. Are, are you guys making efforts to try to, to you know, fight on that? this home front, so to speak, as well? Yeah, well, that is the reason all of our content is available in English, because we do want to be able to reach that audience. Um, another thing we do is we have a lot of awareness campaigns about Ukrainian cultural and historical figures that were appropriated by Russia. So recently, we were published in a few places that picked up our story about Kazimir Malevich, the avant-garde artist, who is one of the most famous avant-garde artists in history. In fact, he's credited with, well, he invented suprematism and he's incredible. Ukrainian, but Russia loves to claim him as Russian. If you go to Moscow, there's a Malevich Plaza in Moscow and they use him as their like spokesperson for a lot of Russian sponsored events and things like that. And most museums in the West and a lot of museums in the US label Malevich as a Russian artist in their museums. So one of the things that we've been doing is lobbying these museums, especially the Museum of Modern Art in New York, to change their labeling to say that he's a Ukrainian artist. And this, we started an online campaign. It got picked up by a few news pieces. And I mean, we got some conversation around it. Um, as far as last time I checked, the MoMA still hadn't commented or changed their labeling. But this is this is one of the ways that we kind of do that. And I think one of my big missions whenever I do return to Stanford is to talk to my professors and revise the curriculum of Russian and Eastern European history. Because I was talking with my friend actually last night about this. And she said, I really want to learn more about Ukraine and about Eastern Europe up what uh, classes at Stanford should I take? And I said, the best way to learn about Russian history is by avoiding all Russian history classes, at especially at American universities. And so that's going to be also on the top of my list is working with the curriculums and trying to address the Russian propaganda. I definitely share uh, your, your sense of horror at the destruction of, of physical artifacts, archives, and, and and sort of records of Ukrainian culture, and 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 also at you know the sort of dissemination of, of of Russian propaganda. But at the same time, I, I just can't avoid looking at Ukraine today a, a profound sense of optimism yeah. in the sense that the nature of the war between that that, that Russia is waging on Ukraine uh, is is just so clarifying. The fact that it involves a clash of two fundamentally different political systems yeah. at this present time. I think it, it makes it just, just impossible that the Ukrainians would go through the same sort of cycle that, that you sort of described as, as, as a recurrent theme of, of, of modern Ukrainian, Ukrainian history. And I, th I think that's very much obvious to, to, to people in the West. I don't know like you know, what the reactions in the 1930s were to the Holodomor, but, but I can't imagine those yeah. reactions worldwide being anywhere near what we are experiencing the sort of wave of global solidarity really from you know from 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 washington to to, to melbourne with with, with 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 ukraine so so, so i i think there is in spite of everything and in spite you know none of us knows how the conflict is going to go forward and 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 and, and when it ends and, and and how it ends and whether whether putin will claim a victory of some sort uh i i think in the sort of you know long, long, long term i find it hard to avoid a yes. sort of sense of optimism 
about where, no, where things absolutely. are headed for for Ukraine and Ukrainians as a nation, and and maybe that might be a point at which we wrap up, <laughs> unless I'm contradicted in my in my in my senseless optimism. I just wanted to to make sure that Kat understood that because she's found her way to AEI, she's absolutely in the right place. We are the we are the defender of captive nations everywhere. Uh, so. Uh, uh carry it back to Stanford and uh, you know, tell them tell them what they should be doing. Great. From Dalbu Rohaj. And Giselle Donnelly and Julia Zosa. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges arising along the line from the Baltic to the Black Sea. And many thanks to our special guest today, Kat Buchatsky. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AEI.org. Uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag EasternFrontPod. Please sign up for our newsletter. I think the first edition just just went out. I, just, I already got feedback that people are subscribing, Wonderful. so please, please <laughs> get, it, get it now while it's free. <laughs> <laughs> if you enjoy, you will be moving this to Substack, yes, and charging you good money for it um if you if you enjoyed this episode please consider subscribing rating and reviewing us thank you and goodbye